landing? Did I agree to preach on that passage? I am so thankful for a church that sent me off, released me off to go minister with dear friends to a sister church, Chisholm Baptist, last weekend. Thank you for releasing and encouraging and allowing me to go do that. Thank you so much to the elders for allowing me to do that. God's blessing was resting sweetly upon it. And clearly here upon Logan Fries, our dear brother, as he ministered the word of God through preaching. So I'm thankful to God for both settings last Lord's Day. I'm asking fresh grace from him now for today. Would you pray with me? Pour out clarity of mind, Lord. Pour out zeal. Pour out focus and concentration. Pour out hearts of joy and delight in your word and confidence that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that your word, through the Spirit to John and the first century churches to whom he wrote, is also your word throughout history, today and forever. Thank you that we will celebrate the victory that you win for us in Jesus Christ, not only at the Lord's table in just a few minutes and in all the way we live our lives, trusting in, celebrating the victory of Christ that he's won for us, but that we will celebrate it face to face and with all the saints as we've sung previously for ever and ever with you in heaven. Bless now our study in Revelation 17. Make it a great banquet of wonder and glory and majesty and joy to our hungry souls. We come, Lord, thankful that we have fasted from the many distractions that the world would try to fill us with. And we come hungry now for you in Jesus' glorious, satisfying Precious name, I pray. Amen. John's Revelation is first a pastoral letter to a group of churches. The main thing about the book of Revelation and the main thing to keep in mind is that it's a letter golden full of pastoral encouragement and equipping for the seven churches, as well as all the churches in the history of the church, as well as today, and shall be for churches until Christ returns. John achieves that encouragement and equipping by showing how all things in reality climax together to fulfill scripture's prophecies. So the book of Revelation is not just a letter, but it's a letter filled with prophecies. In fact, one author calls it the climax of all prophecies. The book of Revelation quotes or alludes to the Old Testament 1,100 times. 1,100 times. It's also then to capture all those prophecies, not just in specific uh, linear fashion. It doesn't do that. It layers them, nor does it picture them in just propositional statements. It doesn't do that either. It uses symbols and images. It borrows, in fact, invents, many would say, an entire genre of writing called apocalyptic, which is filled with symbols and images, which mean multiple things at multiple times. Just like John and the first disciples inquired of Jesus way back in Matthew chapter 24, near the end of Jesus' ministry, they said, Lord, when will the end come? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So too, the faithful disciples throughout the history of the world have said, Lord, we want to know when you're coming and what it's going to be like at the end of the age. How will you get your victory? How will you win, O Lamb of God? How will we join you in it? The answer is right here in front of you in this glorious chapter, Revelation 17. 
If you took your cursor and hovered over the very end of chapter 16, on the screen of your mind would pop up in the very last seventh bowl, chapters 17, 18, and 19. They're the enlargement, the expansion, the hyperlink to the very last bowl. They're not something different or added on. They're the explanation of how God achieves his final judgment at the end of chapter 16. I see three mysteries in this passage that accord with three paragraphs flowing in order. Here they are. The mystery of God's judgment, first. Second, the mystery of the world's lawlessness. And third, the mystery of Christ's victory. God's judgment, the world's lawlessness, and Christ's victory all are a mystery. But Revelation 17 is Christ's spirit unfolding or revealing those mysteries, not because they're riddles to be worked out by clever people. Oh, no, don't trust in your cleverness or the cleverness of anyone else. No one, James Denny says, can simultaneously exalt Christ as wise and Lord and at the same time present himself as clever. I'm not clever, nor are you. But as James Denny said, we come like children to the word of God and sit under it and let it instruct us. For the Lord our God is wise, and he makes us wise unto salvation through trust in him by the scriptures. First, the mystery of God's judgment. You can see that in verses 1 through 6. It's a vision of a woman, a great prostitute, seated on many waters. All this will be explained. She's engaging in sexual immorality and she invites the whole world and all who dwell on the earth to engage in sexual immorality. And in order to do that, in order to violate themselves in such wanton sexual immorality, they must be drunk. A clear-minded person would never do it. The Spirit carries John away into the wilderness. You see that? And I saw there a woman sitting on a scarlet beast scarlet beast is red, in part because the devil himself is pictured as red in previous chapters, but also because the woman sitting on top of the beast is drinking from a cup, and she's drunk, and all the red in the cup is spilling over and making the beast red. What is she drinking? The woman arrayed in purple scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup, full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead is written a name. You know when a forehead and a name is given in the book of Revelation, that's their identity forever, purposefully. Believers have the name of God and Christ written on their foreheads. Here, this woman has on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman, look what she's drunk with, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Here's the mystery of God's judgment. He is bringing to judgment the entire world system. Oh, sure, John's first readers would have thought, oh, I know who that woman is, that woman who causes sexual immorality and leads others to sexual immorality. That would be the spirit and the woman that rules over Rome. Her name was Roma. And sexual immorality was defining Rome. Surely that was in their minds. Surely that was in their experience. But one city, one location, one time in history is far too small to capture this entire city of Babylon. It's, it's as one scholar said, every city and no city. It's everywhere. It's wherever Lust, 
and evil and sexual impurity and idolatry of every sort and kind exists on the earth. That's where Babylon exists. And this woman is not only the great prostitute, the great harlot, but she's also the city, the great Babylon. Babylon is alive and well. It's not just a little city in ancient Iraq. Babylon is in this community and in every community. And it, it courses through hearts and it courses through families and it courses through relationships and it courses through media and it courses through entertainment and, and medicine and business and education and even ministry. Babylon, the great harlot, is to be seen as the collective the body collective of all persons who inhabit the earth who are not believers in Christ, who are the dwellers on the earth. That's a technical term for all unbelievers on the earth. They collectively are the Babylon, godless, rejecting of Christ, hating Christ, and pursuing wantonly idolatry and adultery and luxury for selfish and seductive purposes. Why is it called a mystery? Did you see the verse near the end, five and six, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes. A mystery because I believe that God's judgment is unfolded here upon Babylon the Great. All who have rejected Jesus Christ. So all false religions, all persons who are uh, recreating Christ in their own image. All persons who are trying to relate to Christ separately than the way he instructs us in his word. All persons who have rejected or are modifying Christ to fit their own personal preferences, desires, and habits. That's who's in view here in the great prostitute, the mother of prostitutes called the city of Babylon. Careful scholars have noticed that these verses here, verse 1, come... And moving into two, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And then you look further down. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple, scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. That vision given by the Spirit to John is matched stunningly by Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 11. There you may wish to turn so you can see the match with me. Every commentary and scholar I consulted pointed me to this, so I thank, you for, I thank God for them and point it to you with thankfulness. Verse 9 through 11, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. It's the same angel talking now. Several chapters later, now it's the same angel who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, spoke to me saying, and here's the same Greek words, Come, and I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God and having the glory of God and its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. 
You see the point? Babylon, the great prostitute, is the anti-church. That's the mystery. Babylon, the great prostitute, is the anti-church. The church of Jesus Christ is the city of Jerusalem, full of faith, wearing white linen, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, beloved, cared for by God, coming down from heaven and residing on a high place, a mountain of honor. Here in Revelation 17, our passage, verses 1 through 6, you see the anti-church. A woman also, a lover, but she's spewing sexual immorality. She's in the wilderness, not on the mountain. She's riding a beast with blasphemous names, and she has a, a cup full of abominations mixed with martyr's blood, and she drinks it till she's drunk, and she makes others drunk with it. She isn't dressed in the white linen of the beauty of righteousness. She's parading in the pseudo-purple drag of a masquerading royal. Most profoundly, the bride of Christ in chapter 21 is full of clarity of mind, drinks the cup of suffering now, and with the wine of witted bliss later forever, because her husband drank to the bottom God's cup of wrath for her on the cross. Yet now the great prostitute with drunken stupor drinks the world's abominations and impurities mixed with blood of the faithful witnesses for Christ whom she killed and then drinks God's judgment forever. So upon her forehead is written, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations, but on the forehead of the bride of Christ, beautiful and holy, is written, beloved of God and the name of Christ. The mystery on display, the mystery unfolding here is that Babylon, the great harlot or prostitute, is the anti-church. This is the mystery that Paul talks about as he addresses us in, in, in his passage in uh, the, the Thessalonians. It's also brought up again by John in Revelation 10, verse 7. Here's that verse. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servant, the prophets. This is the mystery unfolding, how God will divide, and, and in his mind already is divided, the two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem, unbelievers in Babylon, the dwellers on the earth, those who've not been written in the Lamb's book of life, and those who have had their names written in the Lamb's book of life, who by that virtue are faithful to God, even if it costs them their lives unto death and they become martyrs, yet they are beautiful, righteous, dwelling in the city of Jerusalem. So my invitation to every one of you who hears this plain, clear, vivid, rich, stunning church and anti-church vision, if you are in the city of Babylon, come out of her. Leave her now. If you have anything to do with the city of Babylon, if you feel like the city of Babylon has its citizenship talons gripping inside of you, then rip them out by repentance. Revelation 18.4, come out of her, my people, says the Lord, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered 
her iniquities. There are no other cities. There are no other mothers. There are no other women. There are no other places to hide. We are either in the city of Babylon, hating the lamb and desiring to devour him, as we'll see in a moment, or we're in the city of Jerusalem by faith, loving the lamb and caring well for his church, all who adore and worship him. There's no dividing yourself from the true lamb and his city of Jerusalem as if somehow Christ can be divided from his own city. No, no, no. That's a lie that the city of Babylon is pushing on the evangelical church in this country and in the West right now. I can worship Jesus. I just don't have any time for his people. If anyone ever came to me and said, Pastor Brent, I really like you, but I don't have much time for your wife. I'd say, you don't even know me. If anyone comes to Jesus and says, yeah, I love you, Jesus. I want to be with you at the end. But your people are just messed up. He'd say, you don't even know me. The mystery of Babylon is that you're either in it or you're in Jerusalem. There's no dividing Christ from his church. Live for your king. If you're in Jerusalem and you've come out of Babylon, then my charge to you is Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before him. Live with all your might for your king, even if it costs you your life. Matthew 24, Jesus prophesied, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. But then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. That's happening today. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Matthew 24, 9 through 13. Right up to the very end. Martyrs will be made because their witness will be bold. And they will go where they're not wanted. And they'll go where they're hated. And their savior is hated. And so they will be killed. And Babylon will be drunk with the blood of the martyrs. Surely John's first readers thought about the way some of them grieved over the children or the parents, the siblings or the spouses who were taken by the Roman officials and who were, who were made, uh, laid waste to and made desolate and made naked and who were starved and who were imprisoned and then who were killed and harmed in their flesh and ultimately some were even burned as martyrs. That was the experience of first century believers. We have that on record from historians like Tacitus and many others. That's been the story of believers throughout the history of the world. And as Paul prayed in a wonderful prayer a few moments ago, it's still happening around the world. The point that I'm making is just this. The mystery of God's judgment on Babylon is that it's so stunningly simple and clear. You're either living in the city of Jerusalem, worshiping the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and ready for his return, or you are dabbling in the city of Babylon under its idolatry and immorality, and it is drawing you away from Christ ultimately to war against him. Now the mystery of lawlessness. 
I get this in verses 7 through 13, which I'm not going to reread fully, but I want you to see that now the woman, this woman of desire, unholy, lustful desire, she sits upon a beast, a grotesque beast that we've seen before. This is the beast that was introduced to us in chapter 13. It has seven heads, which we're told are seven mountains. It would have, again, made everyone think of Rome built on seven hills. But, but beyond the seven hills of Rome and its seven kings, surely there would be an application beyond because all the people of the world are gathered together under this beast. This beast has influence across the world. This beast has elevated itself as a false Christ. That's why it says this beast is fallen and it is and it is to come. Those are images of borrowing the very character of Christ who who lived and ministered, died and rose again and will come back again. This beast even goes so far cleverly and theologically to call itself the eighth one. It's in line with the other seven false kings who are seeking to support and give governmental structure to the woman. But now it calls itself the eighth. Did you notice that? That might puzzle you. Why the eighth? Well, it's in continuation of this masquerade that the beast is Christ. Christ was, in fact, raised on the eighth day, was he not? The first day of the next week? The first day of the new creation, seven days for creation, then Christ is raised on the seventh, or first day of the new creation, which is the eighth day. And they even knew that and celebrated that about Christ. So the beast comes along and says, I'm actually the eighth. And every clever person said, hmm, this is either wonderfully interesting and I must learn more, or this is profoundly wicked and I must flee this imposter. The ten horns are the ten kings, the scripture says, that have not yet received royal power. So it's these seven heads and ten horns combining their authority together. They receive their authority, these kings, just for one hour. They're, they're just footnotes on the, on the vast volume of history. And, and then they offer their authority to the beasts and they gather together. They are of one mind, it says. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. That's crucial. That there's a gathering in the world right now. If you have eyes to see and if you're looking at the way the world is functioning, this, this isn't where your focus should be. Our focus must be on Christ. But out of the corner of your eye and out of your periphery spiritually, you can notice that there is a gathering of authority in the world. We can't be blind to the fact that governments are seeking to enlarge themselves and they're seeking to ally themselves with each other so that there's a gathering of authority to rage against Christ and his church. That's unmistakable. Evidence is everywhere. They are of one mind, it says, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Then it says, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's verse 14. You see, this woman rides upon a beast. So she's the, the object of desire and she fosters desire. And wherever anybody's desires are, are, are too weak and held in check, she, she invites them to drink with her so that they might enter into a stupor and find their desires inflamed and uninhibited. She's this desire and then undergirding the desire, structurally supporting it, is a governmental structure of seven heads and ten horns. 
It's this arrangement that government has where government comes along and brings its laws and policies and its enforcements to say, we will enforce wickedness upon holy people and upon the people of God, upon the true Jerusalem. This is what we call the mystery of lawlessness. Paul referred to it in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12. Listen carefully how similarly Paul's writing in his apostolic letter to the Thessalonians matches Revelation 17. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one, I take it to be the beast, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, that's the dragon, with all power and false signs and wonders, we've seen that, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, we've seen that also, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Do you see how the spirit of Babylon is flowing and moving upon the currency of pleasure in unrighteousness? These are those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so they are the anti-church this Babylon, this great mother of prostitutes, and they are supported by and strengthened by this governmental structure of kings and horns. Surely Rome was in view, but far larger than Rome, this is coursing across the earth. And we know that because we are told that the waters that the woman sat on are explained very clearly in the next mystery. Look at this final mystery with me, 14 through 18. If you look down, you see it says the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate, naked, and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into the hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. You see this third mystery? It's the third mystery of how Christ will conquer. I'm going to back up in verse 14 and begin that paragraph with this maybe most important verse in the chapter. They, the collected nations now, picture who's here, the collected nations, drunk with the pleasure in unrighteousness from the harlot, the woman, the anti-church, and they're supported by and given weaponry and strength by kings, Horns and mountains and, and all these images for collective governmental structure and power. They together, nations around the world. So it's a massive war. This is the final war that we looked at in chapter 16. They will engage that war specifically because they hate the lamb. Let's remove Jesus. Let's kill Jesus. Let's come against him. Let's kill his people, his bride. Let's make them suffer. Let's persecute them, and in so doing, we will wipe out the church of Jesus Christ and make the Lamb powerless. Probably the stupidest idea in the history of human beings. Imagine a bunch of fleas gathering together and saying, ooh, 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 here's what we should do. Let's fly all together in a swarm 
all the way up to the sun and take it over. Yeah, that'll work. We'll let its radiant heat and light and power become ours. And we'll get rid of the sun, bothersome as it is, exposing us for who we really are. Other fleas, are you ready? Follow me. Let's go. Ay, 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 ay. Stupidest thing in the universe. So verse 14 says, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. Oh, for ground because he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. What does that mean? It means Christ, the lamb is absolutely sovereign over all things. No one comes to steal his light from him any more than you can steal light from the sun. No one comes to steal his power and radiance and glory from him any more than you can steal the power and radiance from the sun. He exposes all things for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. The way the sun rules over fleas. And the stunning reality is that he chose by his spirit to put this phrase at the end of verse 14 in it just to equip and encourage us and John, make sure we know it, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. With conquering Christ the Lamb are conquering, called, chosen Faithful believers. Faithful because they were chosen before the foundation of the world and called, written into the Lamb's book of life. That's how they remain faithful. These are the ones who were faithful even unto death all the way back up in chapter 17, verse 6, when they are the ones giving their blood for the great harlot to drink. They are the ones faithful, called, and chosen, and all who are in Christ, all who dwell in Jerusalem, by believing in Jesus Christ, reveal they are faithful, called, and chosen. Look at verses 15 and 16. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, these are the peoples and multitudes and nations. And the ten horns you saw, they are the beast. They will hate the prostitute. You see what happens in the middle of the war? Right in the middle, right at the apex of the war. There's the lamb and there's all his white garbed, Military masses with him in great victorious battle. But this is not a close war or a highly contended battle. This is a wipeout. Why? Because there is absolute insanity and hatred and betrayal and mutiny in the ranks of the evil. The nations and the multitudes and the peoples and the ten horns that have this these kings with temporary rule, they begin to hate the prostitute. They turn on Babylon. All of a sudden, at the height of their battle, they don't become Christians. They just hate Babylon like crazy. And then it says, they will make her desolate naked, devour her flesh, and burn her with fire. And as John is writing that glorious reality that God has achieved over and over in the history of the people of Israel, whenever they are small, whenever they are attacked, and whenever they are surrounded on every side, God causes confusion to cause all the marauding nations to fight against each other. Second Chronicles 20 comes to mind in many other examples. Maybe the cross itself is the highest example of Romans and Jewish leaders and Judas and Satan all conspiring together to crucify the Son of God, but they also were committing suicide. 
The insanity of evil is on display here. The way God brings about judgment of Babylon at the end is all the people that she thought were drunk and following her into her vile impurities, they all turn against her. And that happens because God ordained that it would happen. Look at verse 17. For God, this is the ground for why that happens that way. This is the mystery resolved and revealed. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. If you're in the city of Babylon, you have to believe that evil runs the world and evil ultimately wins. If you're in the city of Jerusalem, you believe with joy that God runs the world and that God through Christ ultimately wins. There's no other way to exist in all humanity. No other options. 